Hello everyone, this is Chip checking in. And tonight I will be reading a section or two, maybe three, who knows, of my introduction to formal languages and automata textbook. Uh, for anyone that's crazy enough to want to follow along, this is an introduction to formal Languages and Automata by Peter Lenz. Um, we are on chapter 11, specifically section 11.2, with unrestricted grammars. So yeah, this is going to be boring. It's going to be grueling. I'm going to hate it. You're going to hate it. But hey, misery loves company, which is why I'm doing this, because fuck it. Okay, I don't know how this is going to work. I'm going to try some stuff, see what works. Because I'll be taking notes myself while I'm reading this. I don't know, maybe you'll learn something while I'm totally confused. Maybe we'll be confused together. Let's get into it. Alright, 11.2. Unrestricted grammars. So... To investigate the connection between recursively enumerable languages, great, enumerable languages, already have no idea what's happening, and grammars, we return to the general definition of a grammar in chapter one. Damn, going all the way back 10 chapters to the first chapter, what was this guy thinking? In definition 1.1, their production rules were allowed to take any form, but various restrictions were later made to get specific grammar types. Makes sense. If we take the general form and impose no restrictions, we get unrestricted grammars. Okay, so it's just chaos. Sounds great. So a grammar G with a set of variables, a set of terminals, a starting variable, and a set of productions is called unrestricted if all productions are of the form U goes to V, where U is in the union of variables and terminals with plus closure and V is in the set of variables union the set of terminals the star closure so i guess that means you have a variable u or i guess even a terminal which is weird but i guess it's unrestricted that's why you can have a terminal on the left side of the production which sounds like madness i feel like if you got productions with a variable going to a variable it'd be like a homomorphism that we learned in like, what was that, like chapter five or something? I have no idea. Um, basically, it can't be empty though. You have to have something there. It has to be a variable or a terminal on the left side. And V on the right side can be nothing. It can be lambda, it can be a variable, it can be a terminal, and it can be a mix, apparently. Also, what I didn't realize initially is that U on the left side, whether it's a terminal or a variable, it can also be a mix of variable and terminals. So you can have like capital A, lowercase b goes to B. I don't know. That sounds like madness. I have no idea how that'll work. But let me go ahead and write that down real quick. All right. Got that wrote written down real quick um in an unrestricted grammar essentially no conditions are imposed on the productions 
any number of variables and terminals can be on the left or right, which is what I just said, and these can occur in any order. There's only one restriction. Lambda is not allowed on the left side of, of a production. So see, now that sounds like bullshit, okay? I thought these were unrestricted grammars, okay? We need some freedom up in this bitch, okay? Free the grammar. Free the grammar, okay? They're unrestricted, but you're restricting them. That makes a whole lot of sense, Peter. Okay? Jesus. Okay, let's continue. As we will see, unrestricted grammars are much more powerful than restricted forms, like the regular and context-free grammars we have studied so far. In fact, unrestricted grammars correspond to the largest family of languages we can hope to recognize by mechanical means. That is, unrestricted grammars generate exactly- God damn it, dog. Lay down. Sorry, that was my doggy. Um, okay, let me repeat that. In fact, unrestricted grammars correspond to the largest family of languages we can hope to recognize by mechanical means. That is, unrestricted grammars generally generate exactly the family of recursively enumerable languages. We show this in two parts. The first is quite straightforward, but the second involves a lengthy construction. Whoopee, this is going to be amazing. Okay. Theorem 11.6. Any language generated by an unrestricted grammar is recursively enumerable. Okay, what does that even mean? Any language generated by an unrestricted grammar is recursively enumerable. Okay. Cool. I totally forget what recursively enumerable means, but uh, fine. And then he gives a proof here. It says, so the grammar in effect defines a procedure for enumerating all strings in the language systematically. Okay. For example, we can list all strings W and L such that S goes to W. That is, W is derived in one step. Okay. Since the set of productions of the grammar is finite, there will be a finite number of such strings. Okay. Next, we will list all W and L that can be derived in two steps. So then you have S going to X, which then goes to W, and so on. We can simulate these derivations on a Turing machine and therefore have an enumeration procedure for the language. Hence, it is recursively enumerable. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sure you've already got the sense of this from what I said previously. I don't remember what recursively enumerable means. All I know is the recursive part is not what most programmers think of as recursive. I think it's also related to being effectively enumerable. But then the whole enumerable part, enumerable part is like you're able to like count the elements in a set or something. So then it's recursive or effective or effectively enumerable? I have no idea. So this is just talking about some gibberish bullshit, I guess. Where it's saying any language that an unrestricted grammar can produce or generate is therefore going to be recursively enumerable because of this procedure that they just gave in the, the proof. So I guess because you can take an unrestricted grammar and just produce the string in one step or any string 
uh, in that language with in one step. Um, I guess that somehow makes it recursively enumerable. I have no idea. It makes no sense. Okay, so now since I'm already confused within the first page of this chapter, I figure why not go back to the previous section and try to review some of this and see if that unlocks some hidden crap in my brain that helps me understand this. I don't know. So let's let's do that, okay? So 11.1. So I have written here that countable means that basically if you have a countable set, it can be put into a one-to-one -one correspondence with positive integers, which I guess means you can somehow pair an element in the set to a positive integer, like one, two, three, you know, obviously, you know, intuitively, you're probably thinking that the relationship between an integer and an element in a set would probably be the order it comes in that set. Um, well, then I guess that's what effectively enumerable means, is where you have an algorithm to actually figure out what's the first, second, third, whatever. Um, and then I guess if you're effectively enumerable, then you're also recursively enumerable. If you're effectively enumerable, then yeah, you have an algorithm to actually generate the words in a language. And basically it means if you have an algorithm to generate the words in a language, you're gonna get a first language, a second language, a third language. No, wait, no, excuse me. A first word, a second word, third word, whatever. And so that is what makes it effectively enumerable seems kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where you're effectively enumerable because you have an algorithm, but you have an algorithm because you're effectively enumerable, I guess. I don't know. I'm not the expert here. I just work here. Welcome to Chili's. Um, yeah, so a language is recursively enumerable if there's a Turing machine that accepts it and vice versa. Okay, so if there's a Turing machine that can accept a language, then it's recursively enumerable, which I think also means effectively enumerable. Not entirely sure. Okay, so I just paused real quick and looked it up on good old Wikipedia here, trying to look up what the hell effectively enumerable and recursively enumerable is, and if there's any difference between the two. Okay, so the thing that first comes up is computably enumerable. And it says in computability theory, a set of S natural numbers is called computably enumerable, recursively enumerable, semi-decidable, partially decidable, listable, provable, or Turing recognizable. So what the last part tells me, the Turing recognizable part, is that basically recursively enumerable and effectively enumerable are probably the same thing. Because if it's Turing recognizable and it's saying that it could also be called recursively enumerable when I'm looking up what the hell effectively enumerable is, it's probably all the same stuff. And since I'm not seeing anything that I guess thwarts that theory, I think I'm going to go with it for now. Okay, moving forward, chugging along, whatever. Okay. See, so yeah, let's go through this crap again. Uh, yeah, so 
back to 11.1 that we were going through. Um, yeah, so then recursively enumerable, or effectively enumerable, whatever, just means that there's a Turing machine that can accept it. Doesn't necessarily mean that it halts. It doesn't mean that it um, doesn't get into some weird loop where it never halts, whatever. Like it, it could halt on a non-final state um, for some strings, or it could um, get into an infinite loop. You don't know. All you know is this Turing machine can accept the language, or a language, and it makes that language recursively enumerable or effectively enumerable. Next, a language L on sigma is recursive if there exists a Turing machine M that accepts L and halts on every string N sigma star. So basically, regardless if a string in sigma star is NL or not, this Turing machine will halt. It'll either halt in a final state, meaning that it's in the language and accepted by the Turing machine, or it will halt in a non-final state, meaning that it's not an L and it's not accepted by the Turing machine. So recursive basically means there's a Turing machine that recognizes L and it'll halt regardless of what you give it. But recursively enumerable is a bit looser in that there may be a Turing machine that accepts L, meaning that it halts in a final state for every string in L. But if you give it something that isn't in L, it may go on in an infinite loop or whatever. There's no there's no telling what that Turing machine will do. So basically, I guess what we need, what we need to know is that recursive is a little bit more strict than recursively enumerable, which I think is ass backwards because when you hear recursively enumerable, you think, oh, you're adding another term to the name, it's going to be more restrictive. I guess not. Anyways. Um, yeah, there's this whole enumeration procedure. Um, okay. So yeah, you basically have one Turing machine generate all strings on Sigma star, and you have M, so not um, M hat. Okay, so you have M hat, which is a Turing machine that generates every string that's possible with sigma star. And you have another Turing machine, M, which will accept or reject the strings. Um, but it's possible that M doesn't halt, so have M hat generate uh, string one, and then have M do one move on it. And then have M hat generate W2, and M does one move on it. And so every, they basically take turns. So M hat produces a string and then M will make a move on that string. You know, taking say an input symbol in or doing a lambda transition, whatever it has to do, but just one step. And so they're basically taking turns. Um, yeah, and then since any W that's in L is eventually going to be produced by M hat and then eventually accepted by M in a finite number of steps. Uh, every string in L is eventually produced by M. Okay, so that's a sense of what the enumeration procedure is. You're essentially going to have 
a string that is first accepted by M, which is going to be one of the first strings that's produced by M hat, hopefully. Um, so essentially, M hat is going to produce a whole bunch of strings, whatever, and you're going to have M that is going to accept or reject those strings. So obviously, there's going to be have to there's going to have to be one string that's produced by M hat from Sigma star, right? that's going to be accepted by M. And so that would be considered the first string. And then the second string that gets accepted by M after it's been produced will be the second string and so on. You know, first, second, third, whatever. So that means it's gonna be countable. But furthermore, that means that whatever L is that M is representing, you know, it's accepting strings, whatever M's language is, um, that will be effectively enumerable because you have this algorithm here. We have two Turing machines producing strings and accepting strings. Um, so it basically generates a, an order of strings that are occurring in the language, I guess. So, okay, next. Um, there's some properties of languages and recursiveness, whatever. Uh, so if L is recursive, and so is its complement. Don't remember why that's the case. Um, if L is recursive, then L is recursively enumerable, which makes sense because as we explained before, uh, being recursive is a bit stricter than recursively enumerable because recursive only requires, well, recursive requires that a TM Turing machine accepts the language and halts on every word regardless if it's in the language or not. But recursively enumerable is a little bit looser and it doesn't care what it does with the string as long as it accepts every string in L. There may be some strings that it doesn't halt on, so that makes sense. Basically, if L is recursive, meaning that it has the strictest form being recursive, then of course it's going to be recursively enumerable, which is a slightly loosened version of being recursive in a way. So that makes sense. Um, so basically what that also leads to, um, since if L is recursive and its complement is recursive, then both L and its complement are recursively enumerable. That's just, I guess, a transitive property of it, whatever. Um, and then, furthermore, if they're both recursively enumerable, um, then L is recursive, which brings you back to this loop. You have, if L is recursive, then its complement is recursive, and if L is recursive, then it's also recursively enumerable, which means that its complement is also recursively enumerable. And if both of those are recursively enumerable, then they're recursive. So again, this whole self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy bullshit, whatever. I don't know. It's madness. Um, okay, and then first theorem, theorem 11.1. Uh, Let S be an infinite countable set then its power set is not countable. Makes sense. Power set is the set of subsets. So, you know, that's just general set theory, whatever. Um, for any non-empty alphabet, there exists languages that are not recursively enumerable. Okay. Um, there exists a recursively enumerable language whose complement is not recursively enumerable. Okay. 
that makes a little sense because just because a language is recursively recursively enumerable it doesn't mean that its complement is but if l is recursive then its complement is but recursively enumerable doesn't imply anything about a language's complement that makes sense okay a little bit a little bit moving on in the notes here on the old notes uh if a language l and its complement are both recursively enumerable then the languages are recursive yep we just explained that um yep and then yeah so if language and its complement are both recursively enumerable then they're recursive if l is recursive and l complement is recursive they're both recursively enumerable bunch of God, we're just doing circles. Um, there exists a recursively enumerable language that's not recursive. Yep. So that basically means their family of recursive languages is a proper subset of the family of recursively enumerable languages. So essentially what you get here is you take there's the set of recursive languages, and that set is going to be smaller than the set of recursively enumerable languages. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where recursively enumerable languages are a bit looser in that all that they require is a Turing machine except the language. They don't have any restriction on what it does with the strings not in the language. You know, it could get in an infinite loop, it could halt in a non-final state, whatever. But then recursive languages, the, that whole set is going to be a proper subset because it's stricter. It's going to be smaller because not only does the Turing machine have to accept the language, it also has to halt on every word, which is going to be a more difficult thing to fulfill. So intuitively, you're going to have a smaller set. And then, of course, you're going to have this further, you know, down the food chain, whatever. Um, the bigger fish is going to be all languages over Sigma. Um, so, of course, that's going to be the biggest set because it's all languages. There's no restrictions. As long as it's a language that's producible with that alphabet sigma, it's going to be the biggest language. So then the set of recursively enumerable languages is going to be a proper subset of all languages. And then recursive languages are going to be a proper subset of recursively enumerable. So that makes sense. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, set of real positive numbers, not countable since there's no first number. Yeah, yeah, so that's one of the things that we were talking about in class, I remember that. Um, we were talking about the set of real pos positive numbers not being countable since there's no first number. So say if you're looking for the very first real number, you know, you have like 0.1, you have 0.01, 0 0.001, 0 0.0001, so on. There's not going to be a first number because you can, you can go on infinitely, essentially. Um, yeah, but I mean, if you were going to do like integers, you know, positive integers, then you're going to have one, two, three, four, five. So I think that would be countable. Let me double check real quick.
Okay. Sweet. Yeah. So the set of the set Z of positive zero and negative integers is countable. So yeah, just like I was thinking. It is countable. We got it. We got him, boys. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Okay, so that basically finishes 11.1. So what we need to keep in mind is that recursively enumerable, aka effectively enumerable, means that there's an algorithm that tells us what the first, second, third, and so on strings are. Okay, so then back to this. So the proof in 11.2 that we were looking at that got Miko so confused says the grammar in effect defines a procedure for enumerating all strings in the language systematically. For example, we can list all W and L such that the starting variable S goes to W, which is the string, any string in W. That is, W is derived in one step. Since the set of productions of the grammar is finite, uh, there will be a finite number of such strings. Okay. Let's think about what that means for a second. So yeah, like you can have an infinite, an infinitely long language. So there's no way that you can have an infinite number of productions, S goes to W. So, but you can list all W and L, so it's that S goes to W. That is, W is derived in one step. Okay, since the set of productions of the grammar is finite, there will be a finite number of such strings. Next we list all W and L that can be derived in two steps. Okay, okay. That makes sense. So you start out with the simplest strings and then go on to the ones that use W, essentially. Or they, they go, no, no, no. They don't use W, but need two steps to be derived. And then so on, and then three steps. Okay, so then the first strings that are produced are by the productions S goes to W, the second strings, or yeah, whatever, go to S goes to X goes to W, and so on. So I guess that's where the enumeration procedure comes from. Okay, it makes a little bit more sense. A little, a little bit. You make a little progress. A little progress. Uh, this part of the correspondence between recursively enumerable languages and unrestricted grammars is not surprising. Well, speak for yourself, Peter. Go fuck yourself. Uh, the Grammar generates strings by a well-defined algorithmic process, so the derivations can be done on a Turing machine. Okay. To show the converse, we describe how any Turing machine can be mimicked by an unrestricted grammar. We are given a Turing machine M with a set of states Q, an input alphabet sigma, a tape alphabet gamma, transition function, delta, a starting state, uh, q0, a blank, and a set of final states, just like a normal Turing machine. And want to produce a grammar such that the language accepted by the grammar is the language accepted by the Turing machine. The idea behind the construction is relatively simple, but its implementation becomes notationally cumbersome. So I guess what we're going to have to do is somehow go from a Turing machine to a grammar. So we're basically converting a Turing machine to a grammar or an unrestricted grammar, which is going to be amazing. I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be somewhat simpler than 
an NPDA to a grammar. That's it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Yeah, it's gonna be amazing. Okay. Uh, since the computation of the Turing machine can be described by the sequence of instantaneous descriptions. Yep, so you start with Q0 and then the beginning of the string, and then eventually you get to where there's a, you're somewhere in the middle of the string, whatever. Um, or I guess the end of the string and you halt on a final state. Yes. So that's what the computation of the Turing machine is. You start at the beginning of the string and somewhere down the line you end in a halting state. You, well, you halt in a state that's final, whatever. Uh, and we will try to arrange it so that the corresponding grammar has the property such that okay it has the production of q0w ends in xqfy where x and y could just be whatever i guess as long as it ends in a final state if and only if the turing computation holds this is not hard to do what is more difficult to see is how to make the connection between what we want and s goes to w over some number of productions uh, for all satisfying wait for all w to achieve this uh, we can construct a grammar that and broad outline has the following properties s can derive q0 w for all w in sigma uh, okay and that's only God, he's using like numbers here to represent like previous figures in the text or something. He's like saying 11.4 is possible if and only if 11.3 holds. Like, okay, this is gonna be hard to describe with people listening that can't see it on you know in the book or whatever. But I guess sucks for you. Um, yeah. So basically, you can only get a a grammar production. Um, like that if the Turing machine computation holds makes some some sense I guess and then the third property is when a string xqfy with qf in the set of final states is generated the grammar transforms the string into the original w okay the complete sequence of derivations is then um uh, okay, so wait, start over. So the, the complete sequence of derivations is then S after some productions goes to Q0W and that goes to XQFY and then that goes to W somehow. Okay. So basically what we're doing is we're mimicking in a grammar, we're mimicking the computation of the Turing machine and then once it gets halted in a final state, we have to somehow convert whatever the hell is on that tape, theoretically, into the string by grammar productions. Very confusing. Amazing. The third step in the above derivation is a troublesome one. Yep, I, I, I bet. Yep, I think this is all troublesome, Peter. Uh, how can the grammar remember W if it's modified during the second step? Yep, we solve this by encoding strings so that the coded version originally has two copies of W. Okay, the first is saved while the second is used in the processing steps. When a final configuration is entered, the grammar erases everything except the saved W. Okay, damn. 
him. Okay, so he's just got like 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 storage on the side. It's got like a side hoe. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, to produce two copies of W and to handle the state symbol of M, which eventually has to be removed by the grammar. Uh, we introduce the variables VAB and VAIB for all A and sigma union blank. B and gamma and all I says that QI is in Q. The variable V, A, B encodes the two symbols A and B, while V, A, I, B encodes A and B as well as the say QI. Oh my god, dude. Oh, this makes no sense. They're just introducing notation and then saying the most vague shit. Okay, I feel like I'm speaking in tongues. Um, the first step in 11.5 can be achieved in the encoding form by S goes to V blank blank S S V blank blank or T and then T goes to T V A A or V A zero A what what was happening Alright, so I paused and I've been sitting here trying to figure out what the hell Peter is doing here. And so he's basically basically saying that the first step in S goes to QW, no Q0W, is that you do the productions S goes to V sub blank blank. So you have a variable B with two blanks denoting encoding the two blank symbols okay because I guess you have two blank symbols at the very beginning um, and then s and then you have s v sub blank blank that's the reverse order of the first one and then a terminal variable and then that terminal variable goes to another terminal and then vaa or v a zero a okay so well and then a is any symbol in the input alphabet okay so VAA is a variable that encodes the two symbols a and B wait no that's VAB god I'm so confused the variable VAB encodes the two symbols a and B but then VAIB encodes A and B as well as the state QI. So the I is for the state QI. And then A and B are the, sim the symbols that are being encoded. Okay. This makes a whole lot of sense, Peter. Uh, these productions allow the grammar to generate an encoded version of any string uh, Q0W with an arbitrary number of leading and trailing blanks. Oh, that's what the V blank blank S and S V blank blank is. Okay, because you could have any number of blanks before the string is basically what's happening. Okay. Okay. Because you have the starting state Q0 and then W in the Turing machine. Okay. So there's blanks going to be after W or before Q0. Where the read write head is, whatever, whatever. Okay makes sense 
but then eventually you're going to get to a terminal in the string and then that terminal is going to go to some variable AA or VA0A whatever it's going to have symbols and a state or whatever it's basically it's going to start processing the string W at some point okay um, then for the second step where you go to XQF Y is for each transition from state QI uh, consuming C you go to QJ replace it with D and go to the the right of M we put in the grammar productions VAIC VPQ goes to VAD VPJQ what the dude oh my god it's like I'm looking at runes right now um shit okay so you have VAIC right so you're consuming C you're in state QI and then I guess whatever the previous symbol was I guess so it's for all A in the alphabet and blank so it could be blank A could be blank but it could be another letter in the alphabet okay see so yeah, that makes sense so you're in QI when you're consuming C this is where the IC comes from and then you have VPQ and P is also in I, it's going to be a blank or some alphabet symbol some input symbol um, and then that goes to VAD okay because yeah you're going to you're, you're replacing it with the symbol D and then VPJQ okay okay so again so VPJQ P is gonna be a an input symbol J is gonna be the next state you're going to uh, in the Turing machine after this transition and then Q is gonna be I guess the next tape symbol maybe yeah like any other tape symbol that it, that could be next I suppose I have no idea okay that's fucking weird um and then and that's going to the right so VAIC VPQ and VAD VPJQ dude I'm just speaking gibberish right now what the fuck okay fucking bollocks mate fucking bollocks ooh ee ooh uh oh ching chang wada wada bing bang oh I'm losing my mind um so then for the same production but going left in the Turing machine after you do VPQ VAIC okay so you just swap the variables order on both sides 
So you don't swap the sides, but you swap the variable order on both sides. So the first variable on the left side becomes the second variable on the left side, and the first variable on the right side becomes the second variable on the right side. Okay. Interesting. Okay, 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 okay. We're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. I keep saying that, maybe it'll be true. Um, Alrighty, so basically what we're doing is we're converting a Turing machine TM, or just M, to a grammar. And so first what we have to do is we have to take a starting variable that goes to V blank blank S, or S V blank blank, or T. And so the V blank blank S and S V blank blank takes care of all the, you know, leading or trailing blanks, you know, in front of and behind the string on the tape. Um, and then T, I guess, takes care of the terminal or I guess the start of the string whatever you want to think of it as um so you have to basically create productions t goes to tvaa or va0a for all a in the input uh alphabet so okay I don't really know why this notation is kind of confusing. Um, we have to do that for all A and do that. Um, so these productions allow the grammar to generate an encoded version of any string Q0W with an arbitrary number of leading and trailing blanks. And then for the second step, where you're actually going through the string W, for every transition QYC, QJ, DR, of M, we put in the grammar productions VAIC, VPQ, goes to VAD, VPJQ. That's great. And then you basically reverse the order on both sides for the left productions. Okay. And so this is, that's basically all mimicking the transitions in the Turing machine, which is very. I guess that Peter was right. He said it was notationally cumbersome. And you know what? He, for, for once, he was right. Um, yeah, okay. So that basically takes care of all the uh, computation shit. And then in if in the second step, we are processing the string, M enters a final state. The grammar must then get rid of everything except for W, which is saved in the first indices of the Vs. Don't really get that. Okay. And therefore, for every QJ in the set of final states, we include the productions VAJB uh, goes to A for all A in the input, the tape input, and B in. Um, and the tape replacement, whatever. Um, yes. 
This creates the first terminal in the string, which then causes a rewriting in the rest, which I don't really understand why you're rewriting the rest. I don't know. Um, by CA, VAB goes to CA, and VABC goes to AC. And for all A, C, and those sets, okay. And then we need one more special production where the blank goes to lambda. And that last production takes care of the case where when M moves outside of the part of the tape occupied by the input W. So then to make things work in this case, we get, yeah, we generate that. And then um, the extraneous blanks are removed at the end by that last production where everything goes to lambda. So that part makes sense, where you're getting rid of the blanks around W. Everything in between, though, it's all a whole big spaghetti sandwich. Makes no fucking sense. At all. Okay. Um, great, now we get an example that will probably confuse us even more, but you know what? We're okay with being confused. That's a normal part of everyday life, It's just being confused until one day you die and then you're no longer confused because of the sweet kiss of death. Um, let the Turing machine have states Q0 and Q1. Gamma is A, B, and uh, blank. And then sigma is A, B. And then F, the final state, is Q1. And then you have transitions. Uh, when you're in state Q0 and you see an A, then you go to Q0, keep it as an A and go to the right. So every time you see an A, you just go to the right, you ignore it. And then whenever you see uh, a blank, you go to Q1 and uh, replace it with a blank and go back to the left. So then you're in a final state. So basically you're looking for the language denoted by AA star, which is regular, which I assume is picked because this shit makes no fucking sense, and at least regular languages make a little bit of sense. Okay, so basically what he says is consider the computation, uh, so the Turing machine, like the instantaneous descriptions, uh, you have Q0AA uh, is what you start out with, so the read-write head is at, at the beginning of the string AA, and then the second step, you process the first A, which means that you stay in Q0. Um, so you're in the middle of the string, and then you process the second A, you stay in Q0, um, and then you move again to the right, find a blank, um, and once you see the blank, then you go to Q1, and you move your read-write head to the left. And then you basically have AQ1A, um, which is where you halt, and that's going to be accepting the string. So then he says to derive to derive the string with G, the first rules of the form 11.6 and 11.7. I love that he never rewrites shit. He's right he writes it down once with a number and then references it endlessly with those numbers and you're like, what what the fuck is that? You gotta go and look back. Just like when he was trying to reuse shit from chapter one ten chapters ago. Dude, this dude is on crack or something. Um, to get the appropriate starting string. So basically you start out with S goes to S V blank blank 
and then that goes to TV blank blank and then that goes to TVAA blank blank okay okay interesting interesting and that goes to VA0A VAA blank blank Oh my god, that's a long ass example. I just scrolled down. Uh okay. Draw the string with you. We first use the rules before make it the appropriate string. Okay. 11.6 and 11.7. Yeah, well, let me just flip back through all this shit. Okay. Have that. But then the last potential form is a starting point for the part of the der derivation that mimics the computation of the Turing machine. Okay. So this is where it really gets confusing. It contains the original input AA blank in the sequence of the first indices. Contains the original input AA blank in the first sequence of the first indices. And the initial instantaneous description Q0AA blank in the remaining indices. Next, apply VA0A, VAA goes to VAA, VA0A. Oh my god. And then. V A zero A V blank blank goes to V A A V blank zero blank, which are specified with specific instances of one point eight, and V A A V blank zero blank goes to V A one A V blank blank. Okay. Still not, I'm sure anyone that's listening to this, I'm sure there's nobody listening to this because if you're listening to this 50, almost 51 minutes in and you're still listening with me, either you think I'm hilarious or you're clinically insane. So I'm going to assume nobody's listening to this uh, because it's making no sense. And yeah, this is, we're having fun times. This is, this is fun. Pain is fun. Suffering is fun. You know, it's times like this where you're like, you're just considering whether or not it's worth it to just become a stripper. But then it's like, you know, that would never work out. It's like, that's the sort of thing you go into it and it's just like, is that rock bottom? Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I'm not really willing to find out. Plus, I'm probably too fat. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's some chubby chasers out there. But again, not willing to find out. So here we are at an impasse. I, I guess that just means I'm going to have to power through it. Whatever.
Okay. Um, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you end up with that coming from and then take the next steps and the derivation are... Holy shit. Bunch of shit that I'm not even going to go through because it makes no fucking sense. Um, the sequence of the first entities... The sequence of the other entities is this. Which is equivalent to the sequence of entities. Finally, these last steps. And that, and get AA somehow. I don't fucking know, dude. Okay. Um, great. Well, then we get introduced to a new theorem, I guess, which is cool. And I think we're towards the end of the, ch the chapter, finally. Um, I thought, you know what? This, this might be okay. We might, we might be able to get through all three sections I need to read tonight. But you know what? We're going 53 minutes into the recording, and it's more like double that because I've had to pause and just rethink my life's choices okay so i've been sitting here for a while now and i haven't even gotten through this first section so i'm gonna have to put in some overtime to read the next ones but we ain't doing that tonight because it's like 12 23 a.m right now okay and and this is what i'm doing it's a saturday and this is what i'm doing so kids kids if you're listening i don't know why there'd be kids listening to this is it Pretty sure it's going to be labeled explicit. I don't know. I'm still getting used to all this bullshit. Like, yeah, so kids, you shouldn't be even listening to this. But if you are, for whatever reason, you know, I'm calling CPS on your parents, okay? No, anyways, um, don't go into this stuff, okay? It's okay to be, I don't, something other than, than this. Pick something easy. I don't care. Just to... Trust me, don't become an engineer, don't become a doctor, don't do all this stuff, it's just pain. It's pain and suffering. Money's great, okay, money's really great. But you know what's even better? Being happy. Oh my god, I'm so tired and confused right now, I'm starting to ramble on about... Fucking, I don't know, oh my god. This is awful, okay. Anyways. Back to uh, back to some theory. Uh, so we have a theorem 11.7 here that basically says, I can write it down real quick, for every recursively enumerable language. So after all this time, what's a recursively enumerable language? I'll wait. Okay, I'm sure you got it. Recursively enumerable language basically means there's an algorithm that allows you to know the order of a strings in a language, okay? Basically, there's a Turing machine that accepts it, and there's an algorithm that tells you what the first string is, second string is, third, whatever. So basically, this theorem is saying for every recursively enumerable language L, there exists an unrestricted grammar, G, such that L is equal to the language generated by G. So, for every recursively enumerable language, there's an unrestricted grammar. Great. Great. Totally peachy. I, I, I'm so glad that's a thing. It, you know what? That just makes my day, knowing that 
there is always a fish in the sea for a recursively enumerable language. You know, there there will never be a recursively enumerable language that, you know, goes without a partner. There's there's always some unrestricted grammar out there for a language that's recursively enumerable to love. That's that's amazing. I love it. I absolutely adore that fact. Okay. So next, Peter is so kind to give us a proof for that theorem. Um, which I, I guess he's talking about um, some induction bullshit encoding. He's basically explaining why this, this shit that we just did makes this true. But as we all know and love, this fucking Peter guy, okay? Fucking Peter Lentz. Peter, if you're listening to me, if you're listening to me, listen with your soft, sweet ears, honey. Go fuck yourself, okay? Wanna know why? He ends this shit, okay? He ends this fucking proof here. It's a it's a proof, okay? It's not it's not some whimsical thing that you just do all willy nilly. It's something that's got to be set in stone, okay? It's got to be there. It's got to be there for you know everyone to see all the pieces. It's like a puzzle, okay? Like, sure, you know what, if you're doing a puzzle and you're missing a piece or two there, you might be able to see what the fuck the puzzle is, okay? It, it's okay. It's not really okay, because it's not really a completed puzzle, okay? It's like, you don't really know what that missing puzzle piece really, you know, could add to the puzzle. It could fucking change the puzzle. You don't know, okay? Because it's not there. So it's not okay, Peter. It's not. Okay, and you know why I'm giving you this analogy? Because you give this proof here. And then at the end you say the details, which are not too difficult, fuck you again by the way for saying that, are left as an exercise. An exercise. Hmm. Hmm. An exercise, Peter. Do I look like I want to fucking exercise right now? I know you can't see me. But I'm sure you can tell by the sound of my voice. I don't want to do an exercise while I'm trying to understand this shit, okay? This is a proof, honey. This is a proof. You can't just decide you don't want to show something and let someone else do it. It's like, imagine going into a restaurant and saying, hey, you know, I want a burger. Or whatever food item you, you decide. And they bring you out all the ingredients, you know, prepared, whatever. And then they say, here, we're going to leave this to you as an exercise. Make your own shit. How do you think you're going to react? Exactly. You're probably not going to like it. Just like, I don't like this, Peter. So again, fuck you. And then he ends with these two theorems establish what we set out to do. They show that the family of languages associated with unrestricted grammars is identical with the family of recursively enumerable languages. Whoop de fucking do. It's it's amazing, Peter. I you know what? You're doing some good work. You're doing some good work. Good work. Good work. Fucking no work in some areas. Leave it as a fucking exercise. Eat my ass, Peter. Eat my fucking ass. Fucking counterclockwise rim job. Jesus. Alright. Well, we just passed the, the one hour mark on this. Um, 
I'm going to sit here and scratch my head for a little bit. Uh, you know, if for some reason you are here, thank you for sitting through my uh, my mental breakdown while I'm trying to understand this. This is going to be pretty much a, a nightly occurrence for me. Maybe not the podcast, but at least reading shit. And I just wanted to give this a try to see if it would help me understand things or... Um, I don't know, maybe I could at least offload some of my suffering on people on the internet. I don't really know. I don't know how I feel about this. And you know what? There's a lot of things I'm finding I don't know right now. And I'm learning to become comfortable with that. So, an hour in, well, an hour and a minute in now. Um, I guess this was Chip checking in. This was, again... Chapter 11, Section 2, in my theory of formal languages and automata textbook of unrestricted grammars. Thank you for sitting with me if you were. Probably weren't. That's totally fine. Peace out.